Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Real Talks podcast with Wexford German Ling. From an early age, it was obvious that German was going to develop into a considerable force on the hurling fields of Ireland, as he was one of those unique talents who could, at times, produce moments of magic through the hurl in his hand. He wore his county jersey for a number of years, but after capping the side for two years in 09-2010, his relationship with the game had soured. In search for answers about himself, his relationship with the game and many other things, German packed his bags and travelled the world. On that journey, which included a stay in a Buddhist temple, he found some of the answers he was looking for. But the reality was, he was also left with even more questions. The main reason I record and share this podcast each week is that I passionately believe in the power of sharing life lessons. And I've no doubt that anyone listening to this conversation will relate to German's honesty and perspective in some way. My name is Alan O'Mara, and you are listening to episode 17 of the Real Talks podcast. Oh, it's a poor ball. He's given it to Sean Murphy. Neatly in here. Oh, what a response there by Diarmid Ling. Well, this is a player who's playing in his 25th match today in the championship. Missed all of last year when he was away. But he's come back, and he's come back with a bang. And it's 1-2 to 1-2, and there are 14 minutes gone in the match. I was going to kick off the conversation, um, and I suppose... And really just jumping straight in with hurling to start off with and we'll spin off from there. But I suppose hurling as a game is, is something that's revered in terms of the warrior spirit, the beauty of it, the passion of it. And I just wanted to just actually simplify it f- for the start of this conversation. Just go back to the very start for yourself and being a young guy, picking up a hurl, what it was like at that in those younger years, what drew you in, how did it feel? What was it about hurling that made you want to go, I, I, want, I want my go at that? Um, it's interesting doing this. In, we're here in in Crow Park and looking down the pitch, and it's definitely changed. Like, I I remember co- going to extra games in the eighties, and we'd always bring the hurls, you know. And my father'd stay out in the field with us afterwards, and we like that wasn't that was a normal thing. Like, mm. we at five o'clock or half five, I don't know what time games run out. Maybe at three on a Sunday at that yeah. stage. After our, I mean, this was the eighties, so it was our kind of our regular beatings that we got from Kilkenny and Offaly at the time, and. We just go out on the field afterwards and, and play around and it just always seemed like the, the perfect canvas, like it was a place where it, I, yeah, you're, it's a dream, like it's a distant dream at the time or it's a, an idea or it's hard to know what really it is inside you, but it's definitely there and you're playing there and it's not disconnected from, from where you think you're going, but you have no language to put on where mm. you think you're going at the time. Um, but it translated definitely onto the field. I played with Clannard when I was a young fella, a, a club in Wexford Town, and they're a junior club, a, a small club in town, and in Wexford Town, Fight Harriers would be the big the big team, and, you know, they'd produced great hurlers over the years, and Larry O'Gorman was the big star at the time, and so th- there was no doubt about who was kind of the, the king of Wexford yeah. Town in terms of hurling, but for us, my father was very involved with Clannard, and... We were a kind of underdog from an area called Coolcots and it was uh, a mixed kind of an area in terms of social class and hurling was just a f- kind of a great equaliser in that we just all went and played and we had a kind of an open door policy in our house where I can remember times coming home from Thomastown where my, where my mother's uh, family are from and we would literally get home on a Sunday night and there would be people in our house watching 
old videos of league games that Wexford were playing at the time, like that we had just recorded and my father had play and they knew to come down and they'd put the video in and, mm. and it, there could be five or six 12-year-olds sitting in our sitting room watching league games. And so I think it was, it just, it just never wasn't. You know, it was it was always just there, and I think um, my father's family are all handball. My my, my granduncle is Dickling, who was all Ireland's and world championships in handball, and so that was the big, the big, uh, the big draw early on. And I went and played in a, a handball championship one year. She's like, I got beaten 21-0, and I hung my head in shame with the great handballing name. I had disgraced it all in all at once, and. I can remember coming back and Kieran, my younger brother, he, uh, he, he was just, he basically told me how shit I was. <laughs> <laughs> and my father put him out of the car <laughs> and said, you can walk home and Kieran Yeah, yeah. Kieran was, he was headstrong at that age too. And he was just like, fine, I will walk home. He's, I'm not getting in the car with him. He's shit anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, I realised that handball wasn't my game, I suppose. Yeah, right. But it provided great um, handball, like the ball, the wall and the hurl is the old phrase, mm. like the handball alleys. And I, I went down to St. Peter's College where it was big, I, like 60 by 30 is obviously the big alley, but I think the ones in, in, in St. Peter's College could be bigger again. Well, they seemed like ginormous places at the time. And the, in there, the knowledge of the angles from handball and the dexterity that went along with handball, like that was definitely there as well. It just was, a, there was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of effortlessness in the handball alley when it came to hurling in the handball mm. alley. And so I just, yeah, could got lost in that for a few years, really, in, in secondary school because it, it just felt, it, it felt so natural to be in it. But it just was, it was always training for, you know, every, everything that, it, that, that I was doing, I suppose, was and no different to anybody else who plays the game. Like, it's always just preparation. It's always training for, you always know there's a bigger picture, but, but, I was I, f I feel now that I was blessed to just really enjoy those 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 parts of it because it wasn't really preparation for in the, in 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 to the forefront of my mind like when I look back now I realize it was all preparation mm. but at the time it wasn't like a a drivenness or it wasn't like you know oh, I have to do this to get to where I have to get to it was just like this makes sense right. to every cell in my body and there's no there's just no I, like, I don't think I've ever walked off a field or, or or walked out of a handball alley or wherever you'd play the game not wanting to hit one more ball. Like, and that's that's a nice thing to feel every day. Like, that you, you know, like, as part, as a coach or when you're working with teams now, I definitely feel like cut them off, you know, sometimes you cut them off and cancel the training or stop the training before the end or what they think is the end. So you leave them hungry for the next day, mm. you know, just stop it early, a little bit earlier than they expect. So, you know, it gives them a... A basis on what they on what they should be trying to achieve in a game or in a training session because if you cut it short, like oh, I didn't get to do that thing that I I really wanted to do, and it creates that hunger. But that was always just naturally there, and so yeah, it 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 was here, Crow Park, in those experiences of watching. Like I can remember my father just leaping off the chair uh, in for a, a goal that Wexford scored. I think maybe against Offaly in '87. Like to see unbridled emotion in your father like that, like is just uh, I, I don't know what it does to you, but it definitely you just think, okay, this this surrounding, looking at people around you who really were in it, you know, they were fully in it. They weren't holding back anything. They weren't 
thinking about anything. They were just in the game and they were in the, the rhythm of the game, fully present in it. No choice but to be present mm. in it. It was a demand to be present in it because the intensity of the game at the time really was all or nothing in those championship games, yeah. you know. And and yeah, that's 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 a that's a nice thing to be taken in by. Yeah, it's really I suppose like the connection aspect of that I think comes across really strong there in terms of being with family, um, friends or with teammates and but on the on the opposite side of that, one of the things you would hear particularly heard her speak about is that the the, the alley and the ball and the wall. Mm. Um so while there obviously our, our games are predominantly team sports and you're together and you're training and I always find it really interesting when hurlers really draw on those memories of probably times when you're maybe you're on your own in the alleyway. Um and uh, was it something that you did in your own even at a younger age where you went and it was just that time for yourself or was there always say a couple of you banging around hitting balls off all or was there even from a younger age where there was a bit of I suppose not escapism but just a place where you go to just be present and do that thing it's mm, a good question yeah um I, I, it's it's a tough one to 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 answer because in the, the different moments that kind of flashed to mind like there was there's a street league in in the area that I grew up in in Wexford when I was, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I was always playing way ahead of my my, my time yeah. because I just was, I was, you know, the game came really, really naturally to me from a young age. And so the team thing was always the basis of it. Like you always understood that the game didn't really exist. Like this was a time before under sixes and sevens. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of started under tens or maybe under twelves. And so you kind of had to start young. But the only outlet really was was the game, you know, and training and mm. uh, and that. And I, I saw my, my older brother, Davey, who who was who went on to play with Wexford up until minor, he was very individualistic about it in a sense that he would, like, Jenny broke the hearts of our neighbours in town. He used to draw, he used to get chalk from school. I'm, su- I'm assuming he asked for it, but he took chalk <laughs> yeah, from I school. Anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wexford town, you know, to ask for Brian. Um, certainly not chalk, but he used to take chalk and, and then he'd draw pitches the whole length of the street. Like when I think about a hundred yards like down the street With that the we chalk. lived on in town and he yeah. would have the small square, the, the goal, <laughs> the 14, the 21, the 40, the whole way up the street and yeah. he'd relive everything that he saw here. And so I was a little bit more, I'm the second child and sure, as is the case for the second child, like he took all, he took all the hardship yeah. and I got away with, I was kind of came in under his umbrella and I had a bit more, I think, freedom and I just wasn't as taken with the game in that sense. Mm. I wasn't, I was kind of trying to explore and be other, just explore things a little bit, yeah. but still loved playing it, playing the game. But that intensity definitely wasn't there at mm. that age. And um, the times of individuality I suppose that you're talking about like where you just that escape or getting lost in it the, the alley provided it in a way but at the time it was never really to the forefront of my mind of an, of an escape it was always just this this is something we're all doing now I, I remember I noticed alright when I was a young fella of, I maybe 12 or 13 when we we had the crew of lads that we played with and I realised like it, it just it became known to me because I didn't realise before it because we were playing a lot but it became it became a kind of yeah it, it just made sense to me that I was too rough 
with the with the other with the other lads, my my intensity had gone up a, a level, and I wanted you know there was more ferocity in what I was doing, right. and they were still playing, but I wasn't okay. playing anymore. I was now it's more competitive. It was getting more, yeah. I was was obviously taking steps up in that of of going where I wanted to go, and that was a kind of a shift that I probably noticed. All right, mm. but other than that, it always felt pretty natural to be just in the in the rhythm of the of 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 the game with it with teammates and stuff. From those memories there we're laughing at and like, you know, things do evolve and it's a game you stick at and obviously progress at and develop with. Which brings you into as I said ultimately into the Wexford senior panel. And I think you made your debut in two thousand and four, was it? Mm. Um I know as you said I was and I was I was skipping through clips and stuff last night. Um so I suppose what's your from, coming from that place of joy as a young as a young kid playing and sort of Discovering the beauty of hurling maybe is a, mm. is, a, is a nice way to describe it. So then, what? How does that compare to when you enter into into that setup and you become sort of probably a figure, or, or you become, you basically get to a place that you probably thought about a lot growing up. Have you? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so what was that like? You know, when I think there were there was times definitely from minor on, like I played here in a minor Leinster final against Kilkenny, and the ball. Dropped under the Hogan stand, which was the old Hogan stand mm. at the time, and I was nervous. You know, my body was nervous. I I was overcome with the with the occasion, really. And I pulled. And I think it might. Have, I'm not sure it was Jackie Tyrrell. I never asked him, but I, I think it might have been Jackie was cornerback, and he flicked the ball above, and and I just pulled, and I pulled late, and I pulled straight up into him, and I got a yellow card, or I got a booking at the time, maybe it was, and. Within now, this was about seven minutes gone, and I was already booked. And it, and I suppose Liam Griffin was manager at the time. And he could see I was a little bit chaotic looking. I'd say, and he and I was got you know I got hauled ashore after fifteen minutes. Like, right. And when that happens, a lot of people around you start to doubt your ability to deal with the pressure and to deal mm. with the like to deal with a big occasion because it is a, it is a big occasion, yeah. particularly when you hold it in your mind's eye as something. From a very young age, then mm. you you make this the occasion a lot there's bigger. Emo- like, you know? There's a huge emotional attachment to you, it. Like it's it just it's hard to ground it, you know, in some mm. kind of reality. Like it, it can just get lost on you, and so it did definitely for me. And I think and then then when another few games over the following years of under twenty one, and we'd successful under twenty one years in in oh one and oh two. Um, if I played badly in a big game. That that kind of I could feel that around me, like from my you know teammates or family or whatever, like that little bit of distrust in my ability to deal with the big occasion. So coming in here on in two thousand and four, it was against Cork in the All Ireland semi final, and I was I was straight on over and the hill sixteen. What age? That's what age you now for that? Twenty two, maybe right. twenty maybe twenty two or three. She's still a very young man, like straight and and slight as well because I'd spent time in America the year before and I wasn't um, physically. I hadn't rebuilt myself mm. up to the level that the game was only kind of starting to really get very physical. I suppose on the back of the ninety five to well, that kind of ninety six on when Wexford used it and other teams began to use the physical development. So th- to get bigger and like I didn't think I was fit to be even on the panel I was that I felt that weak you know I was just wasn't strong enough so when I came on I came on of course on Sean O'Gahalpine they were like 10 points up and I was just like how how did I find myself here and I saw then the following day in the paper I guess they used as the story of the game because carpet us by about 20 points yeah there was a picture of me and I had the ball I think the one time I had the ball in half and (laughs) 
Sean Og was around me and he honestly looked about three yeah, times the size like, of me and was four other Cork lads around and I was just like a, a chap, like a little... Uh, but but I went out and ran back and forth across the 45 because that was our technique, our, our game plan at the time. We mm. bet Kilkenny by... by we, we devised our own game plan. Damien Fitzhenry called a meeting of the players and we devised our own game plan coming up to the Leinster final because the Kilkenny half-back line was just... It couldn't be beaten, you know. Right. And um, little did we know we were coming up against the Cork half-back line just starting <laughs> off as well. But I remember to try and counter their dominance in the air when Fitzy would start to puck the, his run up to puck the ball out we'd sprint across the field mm. and try and use our fitness to yeah. be timing our runs to land and I had been timing my run for a long time the high catch was the skill that I most admired I'd follow mm. George O'Connor when I was a young fella like I thought I didn't think there was anything you could do more beautiful in the game than just like, pluck one out of the sky pluck one out of the sky mm. with a forest of hurls around you I just thought that was really where it was at you know and so I, I felt kind of ready for it and they started Paul Colley I remember the day and sure the experience Paul had now at the time he didn't really have the fitness to cover the, the ground but I got on at half time and I said right I'm on probably the fittest human being in the country here but I am going to Thanking run it. back yeah. and forth as much as I can and <laughs> I ran into Mitch Jordan who was on our team and I ran over the sideline at one stage I just <laughs> I just wanted to and, and, and Sean Oak like I think was to pick up somebody else or they were kind of saying to me to pick up the other wing I can't remember who it was but Sean Og was kind of, he was following me a little bit, I think, first, because he was like, gosh, you know, this will... Yeah, little we'll, spring we'll, chicken we'll, here. Yeah, like. we'll, we'll get to the rest of the half out yeah. here pretty easily, you know. And so then he saw that I just couldn't stop. I physically couldn't stop running. I think I was so excited. And <laughs> I think after a while, he's like, okay, whoever it was, you can yeah. take him off my hands. I don't want to be running after him anymore because I wasn't even really running towards the ball mm. or anything. I just yeah. was running, you know. So that was the, the exuberance of it. And I think after that... The following year, we played Kilkenny here in the Leinster final and, and we were beaten by four points and probably should have beaten them. We were up 1-7 to a point at, at, after about 15 minutes and there was a big turnaround with, I think, Adrian Fenlon got injured in about the 25th minute and they, and they got a few scores back on, quickly scored a point from halfway over his shoulder on the bounce um, in the same game. It was the best point I've ever seen scored and that, that I played well in that and I felt a, a confidence and a strength begin to come into my game and so when people began to doubt at any stage after that I just didn't mm. it didn't register with me anymore because I knew that I could come here and, and play well and I was working things out in the game in a different way than I could see maybe people around me um, doing it or wasn't necessarily encouraged to do it like we, I marked Martin Comerford here that day and I chatted to him afterwards we went on a trip to Boston and we were chatting about it he was just like I don't know what you were thinking like, but down here in front of the canal end on the Hogan stand side, as their goalkeeper was pucking the ball out, I knew Comerford had, I don't know, like eight inches on me, mm. like, you know, like he was a good half foot taller than me, if not more stronger, more experienced, better catching it. Like he had everything on yeah. me really. And so I didn't know what I was going to do with him. But I worked out that I, I've always been amazed by the fact that a goalkeeper pucks the ball out. And within about... Like when you look at the sheer mechanics of a catch, like within about two seconds, you can stand in basically the right spot with your hand up in the air. Yeah, where it's going to land. And this little ball will land in this little small circle of space. Now you won't be directly yeah. able to do it, but you won't be far off. And that's within about the first, I'd say the first two to three seconds. Mm. So you're talking about like the like the, the, be, the power of the brain to work this stuff out. Mm. It just blows my mind. So I was thinking the whole thing with 
with Martin and with the Kenny lads at the time was positioning. Like you, I used to like the run, the jump, play the hurl, catch the ball. That was kind of the technique. You'd let them think they were going to catch it, and then you come up from behind and, and you know play their play their hand or play the play the hurl. And I was like, he's getting his positioning in those first two seconds. He knows where he wants to be in those first two seconds. So as the ball has been pucked out, I, I'd put the hurl across his eyes. Just put it over in front and he'd flick it with his hand and then he put I put the hurl back over again. Mm. And that those two seconds destabilized him yeah, enough that he could get the position. Yeah. My, that was my chance to kind of and once he didn't catch it, I, I didn't mm. need to catch it, I was happy enough, you know. So getting to work those problems out and then taking them onto the field and and, and seeing the that come to fruition mm. was like, okay, this is yeah, this this is fine. Like I can I can, I can do this. But definitely felt I was wing back at the time and Liam Dunn had just retired and it was I was essentially in, in his jersey and it felt the the way even though maybe Wexford wouldn't have been highly respected at the time, I felt the great weight of expectation of of of, of playing for Wexford and the respect yeah. they had for former players was all in the melting pot as well and was a great kind of driving force. I take in that so going from that space of like I, mean, I was sort of laughing as you were calling that day against Cork because it's just there's a real like it's a naivety and it's an yeah. exhilaration and exuberance and it's just it's all the real positive emotions I suppose that you like mm-hmm. if you look at a game as a kid or you look at a game you say that's what I want my kid to feel if he plays or that's you know that's what it's meant to feel like yeah, yeah. or I suppose what you'd like it to be like yeah um, and I suppose and, and the example you've given there from the game against the Kenny so it's quite obvious that you're quite a deep thinker about the game probably a deep thinker in general we might come to that as we go on um, but I suppose by the time say 2009, 2010 roll around you've been the captain of the team for two years and, and you, you've, you've referenced the expectation there starting to feel that and by the end of that 2010 season has your relationship changed a little bit in terms of how you're viewing it or how you're feeling about shouldering that yeah, it had changed, but it changed by my own, by, by, I suppose I had, I had made a choice in 2007 to, to do something and it had a huge impact on my life. Like I got into the cryotherapy chamber and I've talked about it plenty mm. and I don't want to go back into it, but I made this choice, a blind choice, the kind of blind choice that I think we're susceptible to it sometimes as athletes because yeah. we're not maybe questioning enough of what's mm. going, what, what, if you take a step back from what it was like, okay, at the time it was like, you'll heal an injury and you'll get mm. to play against Tipperary in a couple of weeks' time. Whereas like, if you kind of stood back from it, for me at the time, maybe my energy was low and I was going into a room that was minus 120 degrees, mm-hmm. like, and even, and even how natural is that? And, and also, if your body is, if I had a hamstring injury, like, you know, it's because I was pushing it too hard or I wasn't training in the right way or there was something I wasn't sleeping enough or drinking enough water or whatever. But the, so the natural process was never allowed to take hold or I never had any respect for the natural process. Mm. I never had any respect for the natural rhythm of my body. I just did what everybody said you kind of should do. Yeah. And this is what you do to get back right. But I kind of think there should maybe a little bit more value put on the natural process. And if you do need six weeks off, you take the six weeks mm-hmm. off and allow your body to heal fully. And, and just now that's, look at, there's an idealism in that. I know you want to get back out there. Yeah. You want to play these games. So I understand what was driving it. But anyway, I went into the cryotherapy chamber and that just wrecked my body. Mm-hmm. My my system froze. I couldn't hold food down. I couldn't drink. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't sleep. And I went out and played against Tipperary here, and we beat Tipperary the same year. Oh, 2007 was a fantastic year for us, but I was I was taken to the cleaners. I yeah. was just I was I was you're just dead. Not at, you're not at it. 
And that continued, like, we, we, I think we have a great thing here. Maybe it's a human condition. We always think these things, maybe think these things are Irish, but there's this thing of, like, Asher, it'll be grand and it gets better when you're at, I was down to maybe 20%, I'd say, of my functionality. And it went up to 40 or 50%. And so that was way better than 20 at mm. least. You kind of make, yeah, it like becomes you, a new you normal for you, know? Yeah, you're just like, like, okay, it's on the way up yeah. and you're fine. And I was trying loads of different things and alternative things. And I was going to doctors and I was taking every antibiotic that was prescribed yeah. and I kept going to different doctors and they kept giving me more antibiotics and they kept giving me more stuff and everything was destabilizing me more. And so by the time... I carried that into 2008 and 2009 and 2010 and I could see that my numbers were changing. You know, I wasn't hooking and blocking as much and I wasn't as fresh and the exuberance was just, mm. I wasn't thriving anymore. And so the game became a, more of a penance. Like I was feeling the the, the weight and of expectation and feeling the weight of pressure. And, and an, was, is, is there a natural frustration there in that you obviously feel as if you can't do what you'd like to be able to do? Oh yeah, for like, sure, completely. Yeah. You can see what you can see, but it's but you don't even see because you're in a cloud of your own misery in a way. So you don't so, really see what you can't you can't imagine the great things that I could imagine before. Yeah. Like I wasn't like, for example, taking a small part of the game, like Martin coming mm. from catching the ball and breaking down a puck out and seeing what to do with that was a really natural thing a few years before. Whereas at this stage, at that stage, then a few years later, it was just like, okay, like, can I just survive this game without, you know? So I was just going to ask you a question on that because I was thinking as you were speaking there. So like, so you, like we talked about, so you talked about that identity and that need to play and the, and the want to play mm. and the desire to play and said the short-term thinking of, okay, someone suggested to do that and that will help me get back playing. But I suppose to feel that way for a prolonged period of time, I, I'm supposed to the thing that I was curious about was you say you reference say the 40% marker there mm. in that moment when it's happening are you very aware that you're only 40% and you're just trying to not con but you're just trying to elude the people around you or are you actually managing to con yourself into thinking like I'm able for this I'm alright like do you get me? I do yeah I think I do anyway we'll see when I answer if I, if I get you or not um, the first word that came up inside me as you were saying it was shame Mm. Um, when you're part of a panel and you see the effort that goes in and you see the things that people are doing around you to, to, to get to the level that they're at and when you're suffering from something that's kind of invisible except in the manifestation of it on the field I just I always felt like I was being dishonest with them or I always right. felt like I, I wasn't doing what I should be doing and so it was very hard to, I was just in a cloud of my own misery, mm. really, like, you know, and, and so I, you're not thinking straight and look back now, I mean, I, I see what, I see so clearly what was wrong. I said, if I just could have given myself a little bit of peace and quiet for a little while, like that would have resolved at least something and it would have allowed me maybe to see a pattern and to see a way out or whatever, but the, the, the processes of the mind had just become entrenched and so it was just a constant battle for for energy or for to seem like I had energy or just a chance to play kind of freely and sometimes it would open up I mm. remember I remember I got a, a, a Kangen water machine well I, I tried this Kangen water machine out and it's a it's for um it is um what's it called for the ions it makes the ions um 
it puts a charge into the ions basically right. and it increases the pH of them. And this then goes into your body in a kind of a more efficient way. Um, and so I tried this out for like a month and I did that and I drank this water and I was on top of the world after now it cost three grand or something to buy the bloody machine. So I, at the time I just, I couldn't afford it. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't know if I bought, maybe the month of it was fine, but if I bought the machine, I didn't know, like there's no guarantees really like yeah. that it was, that it, that was the thing or how big was it a difference, you know, cause there's kind of a placebo effect at times. And then I go to acupuncturists and go to these people who opened parts of my body up maybe that freed up a little bit of energy so that, okay here I am I, I'm, I'm back you know I have it like I've sorted it out that's grand then after you know a couple of months it'll fall by the wayside again so it was it was just a kind of a it was a very clouded period that I'm still like that I'm still only coming out of mm. like it's still, that's still like, have you uh, made have you made sense of that in terms of <clears throat> what exactly was going on with your body and, and, and like, I have yeah I've yeah. definitely made sense of it now alright but at, but at the time no not not not, yeah. not really it's it's more you make sense of it now, definitely, but there's just a legacy that kind of follows on from it that is a little bit harder to shake off. Like you go down when we look at neuroplasticity and you see that, it, you know, the the wiring of your brain can change based on the thought processes that you go down. Like if, like with the picture of a tree, like a, and the trunks and the branches that come off, the, the ones that grow biggest and strongest are the ones the fluid keeps going down. And I think I see the mind like that. So if I'm thinking if I'm coming training and my first thought is dread or oh, do you know, how am I going to be tonight or if I'm fearing something, I'm feeding that part of my brain that message all the time and so that synapse gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And and that's, so you're, you literally change the wiring in your brain, I think, and, and that's what I had done and you, until you kind of get, learn how to step back away from that and observe it, I, it's very, very hard to change mm. it, you know, and probably impossible, I think it's probably impossible to change it until you realise it's just a pattern you're following and that you can observe yourself following it, stand back, see what you're doing, and then change it, and then you can you rewire your 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 software a little bit, like um, by doing that, you know. Like with all that going on, and and all those questions, and all those things that you've tried, and searches for solutions, and mm. yeah, so you make a decision that you're you're going to go. On your travels. Yeah. Um, yeah. This will sound horrible now, but Carlo bet us in the league and I was like, okay, that's like, it. I'm that's done. Some, like, I'm done. done. And, done with and, this. And we scored maybe 112 or 13 and I scored 110, I think. And I just right. felt that it just wasn't, enough. just wasn't there, you know, it just wasn't there. He stood on until the summer and then left. Right. Sorry to interrupt your question. No, no, no you're was, fine. That was, the, that was uh, that day in Dr. Cullen Park when, when they beat us. It just reached a stage where it was like, that's, it's I like, can't do this I anymore. Can, like. Yeah, I couldn't. I yeah. couldn't do it. It wasn't happening for Wexford at the time either and I didn't feel hugely supported in, mm. in like I was putting way too much pressure on myself and just really dragging it you know as hard as I could out of myself and so it was unrealistic to expect that from the fellas around me and a yeah. frustration built inside me and I knew something has to give here you know and so yeah so I left so that decision to go away um so like I'm guessing from I'm, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but so there's a party that just that just actually just just wants to get away from that environment, mm. certain people that just to get it, just to get an, a natural mental break from it. Um, I suppose there probably is another party that just wants to see different parts of the world, maybe and open up your mind. But that decision, I suppose, to go away, I think so. You've you've you've, you've covered over there, sort of where it came from. But is for me trying to pick up on that that decision to go away in that journey is that about trying to is that about getting some me time? 
um, and trying to connect with yourself because you've mentioned there pulling the dragon and draining yourself for others and people around and trying to force yourself to do things but was the, was the rationale there to just this is the time for me mm. there was very little rationale there to well, be like, honest yeah like the, you're, you're still in the cloud and you're trying to make decisions from the cloud about mm. how to resolve the cloud but I mean you're in it so yeah. it's very hard to know you know and at the time it's just fate this karma whatever you whatever people understand it to be like or it's just that it's the, it's just the music of what happens it's just what happens and mm. you, you go along with it i was going out with a girl at the time from america because i'd spent time in annapolis in maryland when i was a young fella um when i was in my 20s myself and on quigley went before we started playing for wexford and um i met this girl there at the time and she had been back over here and studied and worked over here for for a couple of years and i kind of wanted to give that a go and okay. move over and it was always a big thing like you know for an Irish man at you know 28 in my prime to move somewhere for mm. a girl like and leave hurling was a really it didn't sit well with me because I was aware of I was so aware of myself at the time and wasn't as solid in myself at the time to be able to deal with the kind of public scrutiny of that and, and that's now what a perceptions local of it perception and, of it yeah, yeah to, be, to make that decision you know um, but I I needed to escape I suppose and I could see that and I was trying to make something work that was that wasn't really realistic either and yeah dragged and, that, and that's the other thing you know you drag people through the mire of, of your own struggles yeah. then too because like, you're trying you know, to get yourself into a different world yeah like, not yeah. like metaphorically but well, also literally yeah, as well <laughs> I guess I, I, I kind of mean for and I think this is it this is definitely what when in as part of like what a masculinity or as part of being men in Ireland mm. today like and um, or over the last few years and particularly in sport because that dynamic is there of the group of men you know a group of young men and there was I was in such on such huge uncertainty but it's like you don't feel like you're permitted to be uncertain mm. in it because you we're supposed to have stuff figured out yeah to pretend you have a master plan and going yeah, here yeah, have yeah. it all sorted I felt like I was kind of an adult now this was before I realised the adults don't really know what's going on either <laughs> um, I thought they did at this stage and so I was like it wasn't happening for me in that way and I was clutching at straws and I dragged her through the mire and mm. I, you know, I've got serious regrets over that because this is some other, because of my, you see, this is the thing, you know, and I look in now as a hurler and what happened at Crow Park and all these things, this is this, this culture legacy here of, that you're a tiny part of, but yet you're a part of it. But in the real world, you know, there's real consequences to these things that happen. Like, and for me that, that was to affect a, a really beautiful human being who I didn't have the awareness of at the time because I was just lost in my own kind of battle yeah. so there was repercussions to it and I've got regrets but like you sure. move past that and you realise yeah. look at this is that's part of your that's part of your part you're of growing and, yeah. and you're knowing and, 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 and you get over it um, so that didn't work out it was, as it was always wasn't really going to work out because I was so uncertain and I went up to New York and worked for about seven months up there and played ball up there and uh, and just saved up a, a, a big sum of money and and went off. I remember lodging like ten grand into a bank link into a bank machine in Vegas. I was the only one lodging money in Vegas, probably. But like I just had all this cash on me from working, you know. Right. And, and I knew it was that was what I was going to just travel with. And yeah. so wherever I wanted to go, that was the part. I was just going, and that was mm. you know really kind of enjoy it. And so that was a great experience, and I was blessed to get to do it um, and look back in at. Wexford uh, and how they were going and definitely felt the 
the unease with my decision and all that stuff. But I was still, I was still in the in 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 the midst of a, of a big battle, so it wasn't really any. There was no option or really yeah. thought process around going home. Um, but that came to an end then when I was in Vietnam. I was going up the coast of Vietnam and I'd met these four or five Dutch people and I was kind of making my way with them. I was on my own at the time and um, <clears throat> it was a lovely experience. I was reading Paolo Coelho's uh, The Alchemist and great. I turned to the last page and I was like, right, something just landed in me and I was like, I'm done. Like, you know, this thing you're looking for around the world isn't mm. around the world. It's in you and it's, it's at home and you have to go home and you have to face that. And so... I decided, right, I'll, I'll, I was in around February, I think, in 2012, and I said, right, I'll, I'll go. So how long had you been? I'd been so you'd, you'd done a stint in New York, or you'd done a stint in America, mm. but how long had you been sort of, say, nomad, travelling around the place, just sort of bouncing? It's about a year and a half, I'd okay. say, at this stage, yeah. It's, uh, As you said, there's a sense of that you're look, you're going to other places hoping to stumble across an answer. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not how it works all the time. No, no, to surely not, to surely not. And, and went to, and got... I was delighted with some of the places that I got to see. Think places. Give us a list of those, just to give us, just to give someone listening a sense of sort of oh, place that you went to. And I see, like you know, I'm the places. Some of the places um, it was a lot in. It was a lot actually in in Europe, just bouncing around mm-hmm. Europe actually towards the end. But definitely Tibet and Nepal and China and Thailand and Vietnam and uh, Russia and places like that were interesting places to be and Tibet was definitely the highlight because it's just such a different world you're up in the Himalayas and these people are just so incredibly beautiful like you just couldn't you just and then you're faced as well you and we're in a similar crisis ourselves only we're along a lot further on the road the like the Tibetan people were just being crushed by the Chinese like by mm. capitalism and they were they had their kind of I don't know feudalist ways and it didn't make sense what was happening and I took a lovely video one day actually not a lovely video as to it's it's it just highlighted the contrast when I was up in in a temple in Tibet and there was these young I guess 15 or 16 now it's probably arguable whether they should be working or not but they were anyway they were um they had plastered this floor and so they were I guess you'd I don't know would you roll it here but they had these little cement um flat pieces of cement of some sort it was more solid obviously than cement because they had poles on them and they were banging them down off the ground to right. to level the the floor off so this is you know this is back country like mm. you know it's not going to be perfect but there was a line of 10 on one side and a line of 10 on the other side and they'd walk forward and bang the bang the sticks going forward bang the cement off the cement to level it off but they were singing as they went like they were singing as they were working and they'd come in the line one side singing and then they'd go back and stop and then the other line would come in and they'd be singing and they were all singing their way through their day and it was mm. just so they were they were light and they were vibrant and it was just really a lovely experience to 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 be there and I went in amongst them I was chatting to them and it was just it was really great you know and then I went down maybe the following morning I woke up and was down and we were strolling along the street where these shopping centres now are starting to spring up to like you know to there's a the, the idea is to breed the the Tibetans out like yeah. that's, that's their plan and there was a beautiful one of those shops you know that we that we have here too of where everything is pristine and perfect and mm-hmm. stuff costs amounts yeah. of money there's no way relation to what it costs to make it and, and all that stuff and there was two young tibetan girls working in that shop and they were just a picture of misery you know they, there was no vibrancy there was no conversation there mm-hmm. was no there was no beauty in in in, in their being in contrast the time to- because they just there was nothing there for them you know they were yeah. just kind of 
Yeah, whereas the more physical, the more physical thing that you would assume would be less enjoyable sure. was actually there was much more life in it. <coughs> so you, you just you get to see those things that people, you know, homelessness at the moment in Ireland. I mean, we've, we're we're under like we're it's it's really really. I don't know. There's I don't know what adjective you use to describe the situation it, it, because it's you know it, it almost feels like it would be an insult to it to the people who are going through it, but to see people asleep under these made up beds in these shops like Harrods or I don't know where they are, like these yeah. perfect rooms where it is, you know, and then to see someone asleep on the street out under it in the cold, you mm. know. So I guess you just get to see what's really happening in the world yeah, away from the bubble of, of GA and of country life in Ireland. And it gives you a deeper appreciation for what's actually going on around you. you know? Yeah, it could quite like it obviously very clearly sort of broads your own horizons and in terms of, <clears throat> from your own perspective, getting out of that bubble, one of the particular strands I was going to just ask you about because it was something that I was so sort of I, I noticed as I was reading through is I'm right saying you spend a week in a sort of in a Buddhist temple in terms of mm. meditation and yeah so because the thing that struck out with me because obviously you've spoke quite you've spoke very honestly there and sort of the the questions that you're asking yourself and you're trying to you are looking for answers and you're trying to find mm. trying to find solutions to questions am, and problems yeah. exactly and, and most of us are in some way mm. shape or form but for someone with all that going on their head to submit themselves into a meditation place for a week so like there's, there's two <laughs> theories so one you can say you can sit there and you can try because I, I so first of all I'm going to ask you to explain what that was like but just I suppose coming from the two different mentalities. So if you're asking yourself all these questions and there's stuff going on in your head and you go, you're going to travel the world. So you have two choices. You can distract yourself and like go to all, look at all these nice things and try and avoid thinking about them. Yeah, but then you yeah. obviously submit yourself into a place where, okay, now it's like for the one for better, there's you in a mirror in front of you and you're in your own mind with your own thoughts. Yeah. So what was that strand of like in particular? Because I'm just very interested in myself. And I think a lot of people would have preconceptions or sort of stereotypes towards that environment mm. I'm just I'd be very interested to hear what it was like for a bucko from Wexford who'd gone travelling around the world to be in that to be in that space then yeah it's interesting and it's part of the reason why I'm here in a way with you now because I see what you're doing and I see the work you're doing and I see that you've put your you've stepped forward into your into your your truth or your authenticity or whatever it's described as I see that you're doing that and and the GA public sees that you're doing that and I have a respect for that and I didn't know where I was going, but I s stepped out. Mm -hmm. And when, as soon as I stepped out, stuff started opening up to me. Like I see, I look back now and I see that all these things began to come to me. And one of the things that came to me was this Chilean character. I can he just a, a really interesting character, a young, f a man the same age as myself, who I met playing soccer in New York, and he was going to the temple. And I was going to South America at the time, and he was going to Southeast Asia to go to a temple and right. study and, and uh, commit himself to some kind of monastic life for a while mm -hmm. just to kind of get a, a better handle on his own mind, I suppose. And he was talking about things that I had never heard other people talking about before in a way that made a lot of sense to me, just to, about presence and awareness and stillness and these things. Okay. That at the mo at, before that, they just didn't register. I don't know mm. had I read them before. I don't know had anybody else spoken about them fo before, but I didn't understand. I This was the first time I had heard it. So I said, okay, I, this guy is a teacher of some sort. So I'm just going to go and see if I can spend some time with him on the road. And so I changed my flights from South America to, to Southeast Asia right. and went to this temple with him. And that was up at maybe five in the morning and was chanting for an hour and meditation for an hour and yoga for an hour and we had maybe two bits of food. We'd go out on the arm rounds to the villages around where we collect food or donations or whatever and, mm -hmm. and say um, bl blessings, I suppose, for the locals. And this is people now, like, 
literally with no socks on their feet, like, you know, the, the poorest of the poor in the country in Thailand. Um, and so with the focus of meditation being that you just step back and realize that there is a thinker and there, there is a mind that is working and that you can actually observe that. And so for a young fella from Wexford town who had a million things going on in his head, for the first time I had a chance to actually step back and look in at what was going on. And before that I was the thoughts. So I didn't have any awareness that I could be anything other than the actual thoughts. If I reacted to something, I was the reaction. I couldn't observe myself reacting. And if I was depressed about something or down about something, I couldn't observe myself being down about it because I was it. I didn't realize. So the, the philosophies over there, I mean, you know, people, like when I came back, I remember Stephen Banville, who was hurling for Wexford at the time, saying to me, like, he, he gave me a nudge and Stephen is a great character, you know, and he, he was obviously quoting something he'd heard, which he loved to do with me every now and then. And he was like, I heard Gizzy Ling's a Buddhist. And I was like, Jesus, it's hilarious how, like, how twisted it gets yeah. so quickly, you know, because... All it, wa- all it really was was being in a room with people who said, look at this struggle that you're going through in your own mind. You don't need to do it. There's ways to not do it. And these are the ways. And this is not only your struggle. This is pretty much everybody's struggle. This is the entire human race's struggle. And you, just by a cu- like by doing a couple of things, quite simple things, but not easy to do. They're very simple, but they're not easy to do. You can, um, y- you can shift that and you can change mm. it. And so... I mean, that was, that was, that was healing for me, you know, that was, and, and the people here who I went to said, take that pill, you know, let's take yes. more of that pill, take yeah. that. I said, but, but that, that's doing damage. I can feel mm-hmm. it. Like my, I'm, I'm thrown up when I take it and they're saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm a yeah. doctor and you're only a, you're a patient. You don't know. You mm-hmm. take that pill. I said, it's 10, I, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams. I will try 50, I just, we'll try know, 100. And, and yeah. that just kept going. And so here's, here were people. So it's funny to come back to that kind of reception in a way where people are kind of, looking at you as if you're a little bit weird. Yeah. And yet, so what was that like then? It was uncomfortable. Like, mm. definitely it was uncomfortable, but I, there was an assuredness there that hadn't been there before. Um, and I went back in at Wexford when I came back. I, I flipped like, genie, when I think about it, I came back on a, on a Tuesday morning. I was on the beach with the, with the, with the lads in, um, there's a girl and three fellas from, from Holland. And I said, I, I'm going home. And I just, I said, I'm done. I, I know what I'm doing. I want to go back and I want to play Harden this year. And, you know, and I said to the lads, two of the lads who were with me, I said, if I make it back, like there's very little chance, it's February now, there's very little chance after being gone for a year and a half that I'll make it back into the, the, the senior back up team. The speed, yeah. But if I do, I'd love you to come over for the first game. And so I went, came back and f- changed my flights. I was going to go on to uh, Sydney because my plan at the time was like work in the wealthy countries and then not work in the poor countries yeah. because you could last for longer yes. so I was going to go out and work and play hurl and all that stuff in Sydney and then travel South America but I realised I had to go home and then in that time like you just couldn't write it I was on the beach and I said right I decided and the guy who was with me said look at hold your horses like you know let that sink in for a minute don't Stalled just change everything <laughs> yeah. like, you know in one fell swoop just because you've read a book that you thought was good <laughs> like, you know don't be too rash about this uh, um, you might want a bit of perspective and I was like okay okay I'll, 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 I'll pull back a little bit and I'll give it a day and I'll see and this was at maybe about 11 o'clock in the morning and I'd left the house at 10 and I had checked my emails in the place we were at a house it was a shack that we were staying in and 
I opened the, I, when I got back to the house, this is about 12, I opened my computer again and checked my emails and there was an email from Tomas Codd, who was a selector on the Wexford team at the time, who has never emailed me before and right. has never emailed me since, saying, this is your last call home. If you come back now, there's a chance you'll... Mm you'll get back but if you if you if you leave it, any it longer, he's just he's drawing the line saying there's a cutoff point he's drawing the line yeah. and saying come now and I mean I didn't need to hold my horse no. anymore that was it like you took so, that you take you take that as the sign of that I mean Jeannie, I could not yeah. like you know yeah. it's an invite to come back and so I t just got my book my flights from from I changed my flights Malaysian Airlines were actually great I have to say they changed my flights from mm. Sydney to Dublin um, and I was on a flight I'd say two days later and I got home on a Tuesday morning I was training at Wexford that Tuesday night and and just continued from there and we played awfully that year in the championship in 2012 in the first game and I think we were beaten and I missed two guilt edge goal chances um, and because I was I was off speed for the rest of the year but the two Dutch lads came over and came to the game and and there was a nice bit of uh, like I can't decide sometimes whether to do the most basic things without worrying about which one I should have done or shouldn't have done and I never questioned that once that question had never arisen inside of me should I have come home or should I keep yeah. going it was just it, it was the thing to do and mm. and I was glad to get to go back and, and play in 2012 like Going straight back in there, does that, because look, so you've gone away to get out your bubble and to so, sort of get that sense, that discovery of self and to broaden perspectives. And so coming back and jumping straight back in, mm. does that really challenge those those new strands of you in a way? Because you've, you, may, you may have gone, but addressing room sort of, okay, it evolves in bits and pieces, but it stays the same in a way too, like. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So... Those boys are coming back, expect, and if you've been away for a year, I mean, mm. I would have felt this at different times too. Like, people expect you to come back in and just sit in the same seat as you sat before you went, mm. and you're still sort of, you know, the show's been going on, welcome back. So, did that actually, did, did that challenge you harder? Well, I was sitting in the same seat again, but I was now sitting in the lotus position, and Liam Dunn is looking at me, and I swear he's thinking about killing me. Like, you know, I'd say, I, I, could, I, I could swear he was thinking about firing whatever he had, whether it was a human or a hurdle or whatever he could find <laughs> Just me with the general cut of me in the lotus position at Wexford Train. And I mean, when I think of what was I thinking, because like you take any time you've got this like progression or awakening of some sort and everybody goes through them all the time yeah. like you know different kind of puberties of thought or you know you're these new thresholds that you pass sure. one of the things you do is internalize them i think you know your the, the ego is very quick to internalize them as okay i have this thing now and i'm going to and really you're just starting back the same process yeah. like you're just giving the reins over to the ego again to kind of so that is a huge part of that. And you think everybody else around you is wrong and you're very, I was very judgmental and um, like I, yeah, I remember going in at home thinking like, let's use all of the things that we have. I'd become a fierce eco warrior and myself as well, having come back and seen the realities of the mm -hmm. world. And so I was like, let's use everything we have. And so I went down out the back of the house and in, in the home place at home. As I moved back in there, I suppose, when I got back and I found like loads of cardboard and I was like, oh, they'd burn the cardboard and I went up and I thought that was great. Like yeah. my father came in, Jeez, said, what? what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> like, so like, there's just, it's so, it's so, it's so basic, but like it's so, it's so deceptive as well because you actually think you're going on the right track. And then you start talking to other people who have had similar experiences of, of different types of awakenings mm. and they just say, 
oh yeah that period where you come home where you think you know everything and everybody yeah. else is wrong oh yeah that, that worked out well eh? yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> hook line and sinker I went into it you know so yeah, yeah and but it's great because when, when I did the um, the program the Gansey a couple of years ago um, they, they came down filmed at home with my parents and one of the things they didn't include in the final cut and I thought it was really the only valuable thing that came out of it in a way in the in, with my family was I was saying to my to my mother like how because young I think young men like with their mothers definitely like you can you can lump a lot on them like mm. you know now when I've had all these kind of projected failings I was like oh that's fucking it's your fault like you know yeah. and and so it was a kind of um I wanted throughout that documentary anytime I was sitting with anybody I wanted just to be fully bare with them because it's just there's no point in doing it otherwise and I was saying I said to her like how did you deal with you know me coming back saying like ju- being judgmental and being and you know she had you know she's a mother like she has this experience behind her and she just said look at that's that's what we do you know that's what happens and, and we could see that but it's it's all in the name of, of of progress or of development and everything else so you just you know you you just allow it to be and I mean, look at that's their parents are great that way. Like they see the the bigger game, they see the bigger picture, and and they they see it's it's the phase. And I see it now, and and I know it'll. I'm sure it'll happen again. You try to protect against it or try to be more aware of it, but it's just a it's just something that I think you know after a few weeks or days or whatever would know if I don't do any kind of a practice, any you know yoga or meditation or anything like that. Things that give my brain a bit of respite. And let me be in my body and in my, my myself more, yeah. my real sense of myself a little bit more. I start making decisions from my mind and I live in my mind more. If I'm up in the city for a while, I find I'm in my mind an awful lot more because I have to be to navigate the city. But I live in West Kerry now and I get to be in my my heart down there. I get to be in a part of me that maybe it will be more guarded in the city because there's no fences down there. So yeah, you don't need to have it's those literally freer. Like. It. it it, it, I would say it is, yeah, yeah. I don't know. What and what's that like? And I suppose two questions is, what, what drew you there, right? And and I suppose, and what is that like? Um, similar again, like I, I went back to play in 2013 and we were training up in, 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 a, in Patrick's Park and in Escorty and we had the tackle bags out and Matt Hanlon, I think, um, came into me with a shoulder and I stood up to it and we, we'd already done plenty of running at that stage as well, but I knew I was quite still quite I wasn't I just didn't feel st- strong you know and right. Matt hit me but he didn't hit me in anything like what Matt could hit mm. me and I also had a tackle bag but I ended up on the ground and I couldn't get my breath and I was really trying to go into the you know what I learned in, in, in Tibet about you know breathing techniques and stuff like that to get get your body composed but I wasn't able I wasn't able to get the breath into me and so it was I this was in December and I was on my hands and knees literally I, what I what felt like fighting for my life just to get yeah. the breath into my body. Is, is there a huge fear? In the, there's obviously huge fear in that moment. I mean, yeah, it's it's so raw because the lads had all gone in. Like, the lads had all gone in. Mm. And this was a still half an hour later. I mean, they couldn't sit, stand around all night. And I was still out on the ground trying to just get my breath. And it was like the ground was frosty and I was on my, my knees and my elbows. And I was still just trying to get the breath into my body and... and get every little any little ounce that I could and I suppose it was confirmation that yeah this is yeah there has to be there's a change needs mm. to come here this is not going to I, I was it was it was the end you know yeah. and it was never really the end and I never there was never an end there was never that kind of closure in that I kind of walked away and um, 
and said, okay, that's enough. It was just like I kind of kept going to training and trying to help out or trying to help the young fellas or whatever. And then in the end, Liam just asked me to kind of, I was probably, the things I was talking about at the time weren't what was being talked about in dressing rooms. And um, I think it was destabilizing, definitely for a manager, it was destabilizing because... What type of things are you talking about? I think it was a lot around just presence and awareness, you know, actually mm. questioning things and looking at the dynamics of situations where managers were putting ex- ex- excess pressure on fellas, where there was too many demands on them, where they actually would, I'm mean, encouraging them to just step into their own power and yeah. use what, you use the <clears throat> their, their own life force and their own soul force to actually um, interact with training and interact mm. with the game in a way that was more enjoyable and more open and more joyful because at the time it wasn't a very joyful thing to play for Wexford because we weren't winning anything and we, there was a lot of training that was going on and not a lot of people weren't putting it in and a lot of people some people were and that creates divisions you know what that's like you know you, yeah. you experience that yourself and <clears throat> those frustrations were there and when there's when those frustrations are building, then it becomes less enjoyable and we're going there pretty much seven nights a week to something that's not enjoyable. And so I was trying to make people aware of that, I suppose, and to question these things in a way because I didn't feel as owned by the management or I didn't have that pressure that I had had before about yeah. having to play. So I was talking about those things and that wasn't, um, I don't think that was particularly popular. I remember being at a meeting actually one time, we had a, a sports psychologist in with us and there was a question asked of, of what we felt about something, about some game we'd played that we'd been beaten in and nobody answered for about five minutes and or, or two, it seemed like five minutes, maybe it was only a minute and, and I was trying to hold back because I knew I was speaking too much, you know <laughs> and, but I I just couldn't understand, I couldn't for the life of me understand how this thing that burns so brightly and so strongly inside of us, how you couldn't have a barrage of opinions, a a barrage of ideas, uh, like that you just wouldn't come completely to life about what was going wrong, why it was going wrong, and how we could fix it. And we'd had Paddy Butler, and I saw the moment that it happened in 2000, I think maybe in 2013, I saw the moment that it happened, I had had experience of it at this stage, and I saw the moment that it happened because Paddy Butler came in and he did a wall session with us, and it was brilliant. And he was, Paddy does things in a different way, and he speaks to people in a different way, and he speaks with great respect and great reverence to people. And in other ways, he doesn't, but he does as well in training because it comes from such a good place in him. And he was asking lads, what, what did you think of that session? And like grown men, 28 years of age, putting their head down saying, oh yeah, yeah, that was... Yeah. That was not that, actually, literally not articulating that, that, that the was fine. Like, no, whatever. Yeah, and, and so he was like, no, no, sorry. Sorry, Dermot. I asked you, what did you think of that? Yes. Look at me when you're speaking to me. And, he was, and I was like, oh, this is great. Now we have somebody who's like really calling us in and, mm-hmm. and, and demanding that we're there with them. And I just thought, this is, this is going to go. This is, this is going to be brilliant. And it was only 13 or 14 of us because it was one of the early training sessions. And he was like, look, at, I'm going to be with you every now and then. But in the meantime, the next night of training, like it starts off with this intensity because the intensity of the training session was magic only because he was addressing yeah, you're realities. Like yeah. he, wasn't, he wasn't doing anything. There was no magic. Like it was yeah. very, very simple. Be here find the enjoyment in it and go after whatever yeah. you have and I was like great this is this is it this is what we need and then we trained in Patrick's Park the following week on a Tuesday night and there was I, I could see the body language of the players they were just banging the ball back and forth and I was like how like how do you forget 
how do you forget like that when you go and that's what we did in the, at the ball alley it was down in Piercestown in my home club actually I said how do you go when go you back go to the other like day. that how when you get that level of enjoyment you know when you because there is only enjoyment in when you really like we're here to work like you know mm. we're here to work we're here to do our work in the world and then when we're playing games we're also there to work like and it's mm. not a work in a negative sense like the work you go to in your office if you don't like your job work is a disaster but if when you do it's not work like mm. you know so it's work to do the thing that you want to do and it seemed like everybody was going to just I just I had a vision of it like just going so well I just thought this is it like 2013 is going to be magic and I could see young fellas coming Lee Chin was around the panel at the time coming in and I could see some talent you know I knew Conor Mack was coming we knew these fellas were coming so I was like here we go this is great and the following Tuesday yeah just it was flat and I was like okay there you go like that's 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 or that's the level that's the level and maybe just acceptance of that will 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 resolve some of your tension with this game that you love and in the end the game spat me out and I couldn't do any more yeah. physically and so I had to leave it and it, it, it I never really left or had a like, I didn't retire and I felt I'd had a good 10 years like I felt I'd worked really hard and I felt that some acknowledgement of that would have been nice in a way, you know, maybe yeah. that's, you know, arrogant to expect that or something, I don't know, but I feel like at the end, uh, a testimonial is a great article, I think, by Kieran Cunningham today, who was talking about <clears throat> the Gooch's testimonial, he was saying that, you know, a different type of testimonial is what players need when they finish, and it's it's kind of like, it's the reinstitution of ritual into Irish life in some way, that when you finish something, you know, you cross over that threshold of that's the end and you close that chapter because so many players don't know how to close mm. it and they step over that without realising they've stepped over something and they continue it into their lives and it causes a lot of a lot of distress and a lot of damage not only to themselves but to the people around them and you know that's where I think gambling alcohol addictions come from is that distress that's caused by not really realising that your time is up and you move on to a different stage of your career you know yeah. so I found myself out on Curraclaw Beach one night where I, I dug a hole for myself and I brought out a little bit of gear and a couple of old hurls and and started a fire on the, on the beach and and burned a few things and that was my my ritual to say like okay I, I finally need to let go of closure. this like this needs to be closure I can't mm. come back and it, and it's done but I stood over the the little hole that I had dug and I had the hurl in my hand like and I couldn't, like, I couldn't, I just couldn't burn the hurl. Like, no way could I burn the hurl. And I'm glad that I didn't because, mm. I mean, why would you, you know? Why would you ever burn a hurl? Like, the yeah. most beautiful thing you could have in your hand, like, you know. Um, I'd probably burn some of those plastic ones, all right. But uh, that's, 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 that's a different story. Um, but now looking at, you know, where we are with, with the ash tree and with ash die back and, and the threat that's there to the hurl, like, you kind of realise the the sacredness of it um, and I know that that's uh, yeah I know I know probably GA people I don't know how much time the hurling people really have for for that that idea like of, of how of how special the hurl is and not just the hurl it's what it comes from like it comes from this living thing like the ash tree that's dotted around this country and has been for centuries upon centuries um, and that's a that that's a, a really important thing you know to I think to acknowledge that and We've got this serious disease now and, and people are trying and they are trying to, to remedy it, but it's not really coming forward. And I think 
I think we need to get to the stage, you know, where every every child starts being heard in this country needs to plant an ash tree when mm. they start and, be, and and to watch that ash tree grow as they grow as well and to have that link with the which is what it, which is essentially the essence of our game, you know, this this this, this hurl. So before you zone out of this podcast and go back to everyday life, I just have one or two quick things I want to say. Firstly, thank you for your time and for choosing to listen to the Real Talks podcast. We live in a society now where we are constantly told that shorter is better and we get sound bites forced down our throats. And I find it truly humbling that over 50,000 times someone somewhere around the world has sat down to press play on one of these conversations with our GA heroes. Secondly, I want to thank Jeremy for his honesty and fascinating insight into sport, life, identity, meditation and a whole lot more. It's a conversation I took an awful lot from myself and I really hope you did too. Lastly, if you have any feedback or questions, drop me a line on Twitter at AOMTheCat and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Real Talks. You can also find Jermud on Twitter at at Ling. That's D-I-A-R-M-U-I-D. Ling, obviously. My name is Alan O'Mara and thanks for listening to episode 17 of the Real Talks podcast. Thank you.